Michaela Pogner, Associate Editor of No-Till Farmer. Welcome to the latest episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. This program, featuring stories about the past, present, and future of no-till farming, is sponsored by New Leaf Symbiotics. I encourage you to subscribe to this series, which is available in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and TuneIn Radio. Subscribing will allow you to receive an alert about upcoming episodes as soon as they are released. I'd like to take a moment to thank our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for supporting our No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's newleafsym.com slash 2022. Lloyd Murdoch, Professor Emeritus at the University of Kentucky, is one of the pioneers of no-till research. He's been working with no-tillers since 1970, studying soil compaction, fertility, and productivity over the decades. His intensive wheat program more than doubled Kentucky's statewide average wheat yields from 40 bushels about 10 years ago to more than 80 bushels today. Although he's now semi-retired, Murdoch's research continues as he attempts to find ways to break up the fragipan, the hard layer below the soil surface. In this episode of the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast, Frank Lesseter talks with Murdoch about his early lessons from no-till, how soil changes over the decades after tillage stops, an experiment that took years to take off, and more. Tell me about where you grew up and what you did and where you went to school. Well, I grew up in the western part of Oklahoma in the dry plains, and Mm -hmm. uh, then went to Oklahoma State University and uh, Virginia Tech the BPI. Then came to went to the military for a couple of years and then came to Kentucky and I have been here ever since, um, Frank, and for a long time. <laughs> so when did you start at the university? 1970. Wow. So and t- tell us, uh, you, you got in where no-till was really just getting started, but tell us a little what your uh, research and extension work has been over the years. Basically, I've done a lot of work in on nutrients and fertility and soils and soil compaction and uh, soil structure. And, and then the last few years, I've worked a lot on the fragipan, the soil fragipan, trying to to remediate it. And so uh, that's where I've spent most of my professional life in those areas. Now, I'm, I'm located at uh, Princeton, Kentucky. It's a fairly good sized research and education center. We probably have close to 20 PhDs here. And uh, have about 70 plus people that work uh, full time here at, and doing research and extension work. So it's a pretty big and, and a bustling uh, little area. So Princeton is pretty well west in Kentucky, right? Princeton is west Kentucky. Kentucky is divided basically into three areas. Uh, the western part of the state where I'm located is the heavy agricultural part of, of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. The central part is uh, is 
is agriculture, but it's more of a cattle grazing, raising horses and things like that. And then the eastern part of the state is very mountainous. Yeah. So tell me when you first got involved with no-till. In 1970, right after I got here, it was just getting, um, you know, it was uh, having trouble catching on, a lot of problems involved, um, and people were quite interested in it because of our topography, a lot of erosion. So people wanted to know and understand the answers that uh, nobody could answer at that particular time, the questions that people had. And so uh, I dove into it really quick and worked with a lot of different people in the university. The University of Kentucky became a kind of a team effort to make no tillage work. Sure. Well, you guys were definitely the leaders across the country and the world. Sometimes I think that uh, you guys are to blame for all the success no-till had in South America because the no- South Americans were smart enough to come up to Kentucky and get good advice when half the people in America weren't yet sold on no-till. <laughs> it was amazing, yeah, how many people from Brazil and how many different groups we had from Brazil and Argentina. They mm-hmm. they just uh, were here almost seems like constantly uh, making tours and things like that. Very interesting people, very working very hard to understand and to better themselves. Yeah. Right. So what's some of the things you learned about no-till early on in the 70s? Well, the very first thing that we worked on was, um, some of the very first things was uh, the stratification of phosphorus and potassium, how it affected uh, the growth of the plants and if we needed to till in phosphorus because it, phosphorus and potassium would stay in the top two or three inches surface applied. And so how did that affect uh, things? Um, was that uh, a good or a bad thing? And um, then does it, how does it affect soil testing? So uh, we looked at uh, the depth of soil testing, tried to understand how we change soil testing, went from the six inch sample to a four inch sample to make that work. And uh, then we discovered that the P and K stratification at the top two or three, four inches of, uh, of the soil was not a bad thing. And in fact, in some ways it was good because you had a kind of a horizontal banding, so to speak, and made it a little bit more efficient. And the, the residue at the surface kept the soil more moist and, and uh, the amount of rooting at the surface of the soil, the top few inches of soil was more intensified with no tillage than it was with conventional tillage. And, so all these things had to be discovered. Uh, one of the things was lime. Lime would not move, e- e- move easily either. And what do you do about that? The, the concept was at one time to go ahead and lime and till that in. And then, uh, and then when you ha- every time you had to lime, till it in. But we found that wasn't necessary. Um, we found that uh, lime would actually move over time and uh, the little bit of stratification that you had to the surface with lime was not a bad thing because that's where most of your roots were anyway and that's where your phosphorus uh, and potassium and the effect of acidification uh, on reducing the availability of those two nutrients were there and so that's where the, the lime really needed to be also. So all those things that seem like logically would need tillage we found that those none of those were necessary, but that took quite a few years to nail all that down and to understand it better. We did change, as I said, the soil testing depth to better uh, rec- uh, to to better understand and make recommendations for P and K. 
We found out that uh, if you take the the six inch sample, and some people were even taking eight inch samples, that uh, you would consistently over recommend for phosphorus and potassium, and uh, that's the reason we pulled it up to four inches because that was uh, that was enough to to know for sure what you had in there and what was good, and if you need to add it any more. So now, 50 years later, what are you uh, recommending for soil testing that farmers do when pulling samples? Still four inches. That hasn't changed. <laughs> right. Yeah. Let's talk about soil structure and organic matter. I mean, no-till has really boosted organic matter, and you've done some valuable research on this. Why don't you explain what you've done, what we've found? When you first start no-tilling, um, you, you, you uh, come out of a till situation, and Tillage kind of destroys soil structure. In fact, that's what you're that's what you're trying to do every time because you've destroyed soil structure with the tillage in the past, and uh, so you kind of fluff it up and give you some more pores that don't last very long. But that's so that's the reason that you have to almost till. So it takes a while to get that changed, and um, people were concerned about that. Uh, they were concerned about the soil compaction that took place or could take place, and you weren't tilling it out. Since you're not uh, doing anything to break up any compaction that may or may not occur, uh, people get nervous about that, and, and, and uh, this, logically speaking, they think they need to do something, and uh, Years again, so when you get a, a constant, uh, a, one that's been no-tilled, a field that's been no-tilled a long time, it's not unusual to take that top three or four inches and to see stratification. In other words, it, it horizontal, you see horizontal layers, which indicate that probably so it may be some compaction there. Mm-hmm. And, and people take that um, pretty seriously and thinking that it's reducing their root, root growth and their rooting and water movement in it. And uh, we'll make the logical decision that they need to do some tillage from time to time. And sure. and so many years ago, the, the people that did that wanted to no-till but still were concerned about these this this happening uh, would go and use subsoiling, different types of subsoilers, things that uh, would just heave it up but not turn the soil too much, you know, um, like the old subsoilers would. And there were a lot of new subsoilers that came along in it and for this. But um, I never was sure that it would make a difference. And so I did some studies on that. And what I found out was that if you have a constant no-till situation that you are faithful of keeping, then uh, the porosity and the things that change at the top as you no-till and leave the residue on the surface actually change it to the point that that tillage is unnecessary. I, I did a lot of work on that and did in farmer's fields. And uh, this one farmer really had a big question. I set up several experiments on him and his fields. And I did all the scouting and did the measurements. And he did the planting and he did the tillage with and without and uh, the subsoiling. And then uh, he made measured yields. And we did not find a yield decrease when we didn't use, did not use the subsoiling on some sort of irregular, irregular basis. 
but he still could not accept it. And and I said, I went to him and I said, well, you know, here's the data. You did it. Uh, <laughs> he says, well, you know, you, you, your your research is good, but you know, I don't think you can cover everything and all the situ- you know, and situations and. I said, okay. And then about three or four years later, I saw that he wasn't doing it anymore. I said, well, why did you change? He said, you were right. He <laughs> says, well, we weren't doing anything from that. And so later on, I set up an experiment here at Princeton where I uh, compacted the soil 12 inches deep. I mean, just terribly deep. And it was hard. I couldn't push a soil pentatrometer through that at all. And, uh, so we had a we had now we left some some plots uncompacted so that we could make comparisons, and then I did then I I no tilled in half of them, and then I did tillage, subsoil uh, not subsoiling I did tillage of uh, chisel plowing and disking like people ordinarily did with tillage and uh, compared those two over time. The first year, I planted corn, and where I did not. Do where where I had compacted and no tilled. I got two bushels per acre, Frank. I got you know, <laughs> and I'm just nubbins. And the and then and then where I had, of course, I when I'd used the tillage tools, I took out the top six inches, and so I had six to twelve inches compacted. But the top six were were, and I got like eighty percent of what the uh, comparison with um, no compaction plots were. Mm-hmm. And then the next year, the very next year, I got 80% in the no-till. I'd never done anything, but 80% in the no-till. And then I still was at 80% in the in the compacted tillage. Mm-hmm. And then by the fifth year, I was up to 98 to 100% in the no-till. Never touched it with any tool in any way. And as opposed to the no-till uncompacted, but I was still at 80% in the tillage compacted area. Over six to eight years, I can't remember how long, I I never changed. I was still at 80% in the tillage compacted zones, but I was at 100% in the no-till. I never touched it. Okay, what's going on? What's happening in that? And so I went in and began to take root measurements and good looking at what was happening. And the roots were going down through that tillage layer in the no-till. The roots were going through the tillage layer. So how was it going through? What happened? Well, the top three three inches or so were taken up by freezing and thawing. And it was just as fluffy as it could be, but from, from three to 12 inches, Basically, there were zones of weakness that were being exposed and set up by something in the soil. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a biological activity, thrips, earthworms, uh, small, all kinds of biological activity, and they're down in the soil. They live in the soil, but they've got to come to the surface where their organic matter is for their food, and so they're making trenches and small places up and down through that thing. Uh, that compacted layer, and they're slowly um, just tearing it apart. And uh, I thought that was one of the most interesting work that I ever did to explain the fact that just leaving it no-till will take care of most of the problem. You don't have to be the Lord, so to speak, of the soil. You know, its its natural capabilities will take care of itself. 
yourself in a no-till situation. Right. Oh, that's fascinating. Wow. So what we found was it takes about five years to, to get this structure changed mm-hmm. and to get your soil organic matter built to the point that you don't need the tillage anymore, that you have the proper pore uh, spaces and things like that. Uh, we found that organic matter would raise, uh, it was a pretty significant increase in organic matter, especially if you grew uh, corn or something that had a lot of residue that just left on the surface. But it would uh, it would change it at least a half a percent in, in Kentucky and sometimes more. And uh, it would change uh, the pores and make a more... Uh, a better situation as far as water movement and water holding capacity in the soil. It found uh, we found that if you, if, with time, if you, if you establish your no-till and you get that residue on the surface and you improve your soil structure, that you're adding about two inches of available water over a growing period uh, to that plant than when you had conventional tillage, and that was a pretty significant thing. Uh, in in Kentucky, where we have a lot of times soils that aren't real deep, and sure. we'll have a tendency to run out of water in the, in the summer and the growing period, and so that was quite helpful. And you don't always get yield increases, but when we saw them, it would be mainly from that water availability during the periods of, of droughty conditions in the growing season. We found that uh, what you also what you get. When you change your pore spaces, you get better infiltration of the water on on these rains that we have in the summer, especially the higher, more intense rains. And you change the pore spaces that actually hold the water with time, the smaller pore spaces. And uh, you have more of those than you do when you do your tillage. So it it helped in two different ways from that standpoint, Frank. Well, it sounds good. I went back and looked at a few stories we've done with you over the years. You just talked about it in five years, but you also said that you could see some real improvements in no-till after 12 or 15 years. What did you have in mind for that? Well, we did a a long-term experiment here at Princeton where we uh, had the double cropping where you have three crops in two years. And so that adds adds more residue to the surface, more organic matter over time. And everything changes with time, Frank, you know, uh, and this, and it's slow when you're talking about changing organic matter, when you're talking about changing soil structure. And so you, you, you see those changes, you can actually see those changes in about five years, mm-hmm. but they intensify and keep on improving over a period of time. So in that 12 to 13 years that I've talked about, and we ran it for about 20 years, that's when we begin to see more of these sport size changes taking place that I spoke about. Sure. And the soil structure changes continued to improve. And so in that particular period of time, it made a significant amount of difference in, in the yields that occurred. And uh, so, you know, that was free. <laughs> you didn't have to do anything but no-till for that. You didn't have right. to add anything um, as far as uh, the amount of uh, inputs that you had to have. So that that was the, and, and as i've continued to look at this and once and the cover crops are, are have become a big thing now and uh when you add a cover crop in to the soil you actually can can we can we can make that soil pretty close to its natural state before any tillage anything began to take place 
Now, when we went to no tillage, that really helped a lot uh, because you left that residue on the surface and you changed that surface soil. But um, you still didn't have all the organic matter uh, that you were going to have and you were going to need to take it up another step. And when you, if you no-till and then you put a cover crop in, and, and in Kentucky it's wheat uh, sometimes for, for that second crop, but uh, if you have a cover crop every winter uh, and then you no-till into that, we can actually take that organic matter up close to what it was in its natural state. Mm-hmm. And we can take that soil structure up close to what it was in the natural state. So with tillage, we broke all that down. We changed it, and it was, it was necessary. I'm not, I'm not being negative on what people did because they did what they had to do to survive sure. and to improve things uh, as, as they could see it at that particular time. But now if you want sustainability, you, you, you use no-till with cover crops, and you bring it back up to where it is it close to its natural state. Now, it takes a while to do that. Mm-hmm. That's not something that comes, comes overnight or uh, over two or three years. But with time, uh, we can get up close to that natural state. And that's, and that's saying a lot because for centuries, we, couldn't, we were going the different direction on that. So uh, I think that um, that's exciting to me that we can do that now and still be productive on our soils. Yeah. John Young told me at at the Harry Young place where no-till got started at Herndon, he told me recently that uh, he's been cover cropping for 50 years. And and the rationale he uses is because he's double cropping and he sees wheat, which is a cash crop for him, but also serving as a cover crop over the winter. So he hasn't seeded an actual cover crop, but it's been wheat. But he thinks he's getting the same benefits. Yeah, he, he does. Um, he gets the same benefits. The only difference between that particular system and a cover crop system is that a cover crop system, you pretty well use cover crops every year. In his case, he uses every second year, which is a good system. But uh, the cover crops allow it to happen every year. Right. And, well, um, he admits he doesn't have a uh, solution for uh, the other year yet. <laughs> Yeah, right. Well, he's got a good. He's he's doing great. Those the, I, we've measured that, and it's uh, it's it's significantly better than uh, than just uh, the residue left from the cropping systems and, and no no winter growth. You know, any time. Welcome back to the conversation with Lloyd Murdoch in just a moment. Before we do so, thanks to New Leaf Symbiotics for supporting our No-Till Farmer, Influencers, and Innovators podcast series. What if you could do more in 2022? TerraSim by New Leaf Symbiotics utilizes the power of microbe technology to increase yield, improve nutrient uptake, and achieve stronger ROI. And it's now available in convenient planter box application for corn and soybeans. To learn more and sign up for the 2022 risk-free satisfaction promise, visit newleafsim.com slash 2022. That's com slash 2022. Before we get back to the conversation, here is Frank Lusseter with a little-known no-till farmer fact. 
In this podcast with Lloyd Murdoch, he talked about growing high-intensity wheat in Kentucky, and it reminded me to go back and look up the story that we did with him in 1998, which included 18 tips for getting higher yields of no-till wheat. And Lloyd pointed out that no-till wheat appears to grow more slowly from dormancy through jointing. This is why he recommends applying more nitrogen, like 120 pounds in the first application, for no-till to help the crop catch up. And if a farmer is intensely managing wheat after corn for yields of, say, 70, 80, or even 90 bushels per acre, he at that time was recommending 100 to 105 total pounds of nitrogen. And with wheat after soybeans in a no-till program, you probably need 90 pounds. He also pointed out that he doesn't recommend applying all the nitrogen to wheat in February because we don't know how early spring rains may affect the potential nitrogen loss. Now let's get back to the conversation with Frank Lesseter and Lloyd Murdoch as they discuss Murdoch's experiments with the Green Seeker and the Fragipan. So Kentucky must be the leader in double cropping across the country. I would think you've got more acres than anybody. Walk me through what would be a fertilization system with double crop, what you might put on and when. Well, uh, for double cropping, uh, basically, uh, it doesn't change much in phosphorus and potassium. Uh, mm-hmm. And as far as lime is concerned, now you're going to, you're going to add more nitrogen when you have that uh, because you're going to have wheat. And so when you add nitrogen, you reduce the uh, the pH over a period of time faster than you do it when you're not adding much nitrogen. So you'll require liming a little bit more often, but you still go back to the same guidance as far as pH is concerned in the top four inches. As far as phosphorus and potassium, um, uh, basically... We still use the same soil test, the same recommendations as far as the the numbers when they come back, when you should add it, sure. how much you should add, and when you should not. And uh, that really doesn't change a whole lot because the amount of nutrients that you're carrying off with an added uh, small grain crop is not a whole lot. So, But it, it will change it some, but it, it's almost imperceptible because uh, – you're releasing a lot of that in the residue back to the soil. And most of your potassium is in your in your residue that's left behind. So that really doesn't change a whole lot there. You don't carry much off. Your main would be, would be phosphorus. And um, basically, we still follow the same recommendations we have in the past. You probably need phosphorus a little bit more often. And um, especially with a with when you grows in a winter crop such as such in Kentucky such as wheat, the cool season reduces the availability of that just a little bit more. So people usually will add a little bit of extra phosphorus in the fall a lot of times for the for more rapid growth, uh, but it's not always necessary for us. Well. Ten years ago, we used to talk wheat yields of 50 bushel per acre, and we were happy with it. But you worked a lot on, I think, intensive wheat, and you're getting yields close to 100 bushel per acre or more in some areas. Can you talk about the intensive wheat program that you helped develop? We had we had 40 bushels. That was just about our average over a, over many years, so 20, 30, 40 years. We had uh, wheat was a stepchild, and mm-hmm. sure. basically. Uh, so you you put it on there and they gave you a little cover and a cover crop and uh, 
we didn't expect. We just didn't expect much yield. And then Billy Joe Miles uh, went went over to England and saw their yield increases and what they had and felt like we could improve what we had. We formed a team with with his group and uh, we started doing intensive research on different aspects of growth and and, uh, what it could do and what the possibilities were and changed our fertility program by adding more nitrogen we changed uh, by by going into uh, controlling diseases um, um, more proactively and controlling insects uh, that would vector diseases and um, and then basically we also changed our the way that we did the planting and the density of those things and you can take each one of those and you can change them, uh, but they have to kind of be in chorus or in correspondence with each other. So you, you in, we investigate them individually and, and then we investigated how we put them all together. And uh, we got better varieties that we had in the past. Um, we did a better job of planting uh, all the things that every step we looked at. and. It really made a huge difference. Um, we went uh, from 40 to 50 some odd bushels state average, and uh, then we were, were into the 70 bushels. And uh, this now we're in the 80s, and a knock on the door at 90s on the state average. So it has been it's been huge. And once you learn how to do all those things, it comes fairly simple. It's a little bit of extra work, and we were doing 40 bushels per acre. People would broadcast the seed out there a lot of times and just run the disc over it, you know, things like that. And uh, they were satisfied with that at that time. But it wasn't until we really intensified and looked at every aspect of it and and looked at every possibility of getting the last bushel did we really get up there to those higher yields. And I can't also got to give credit to the the genetics, man. The genetics got better and better, too. Right. Well, I think when you you mentioned Billy Joel Miles, and I think that he got serious and really helped you people and led that. But uh, a number of our people who particularly have been to the NOTO conference know Phil Needham. And I think that uh, Miles brought Phil over here from England to help get this going with you folks, right? Yeah, he was the he was the second wave. The first wave was some people from England, um, and Chris Bowley was the was the one that came over first. And uh, but they 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 believed in what could be done. They had seen it happen over there. You know, and, and I have to admit, Frank, I was a little bit skeptical that we could get anywhere close to what we got now. But you don't know until you work at it and try to prove it. And, and then I found out, hey, man, these guys. These guys got some truth there. Let's 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 see what we can do with it. It was a it was a it was a team effort from universities and from private business and things like that and private institutions as far as research was concerned that really made a difference. Uh, and if we had stayed in our own little islands, we wouldn't have accomplished what we did. It was till we re, uh, interrelated with each other that we really made a big difference. I went back and pulled up a story we did with you in 1998 called Getting Tense About No-Till Wheat, and you outlined 18 steps to take what it takes to make no-till wheat successful. And we made this statement. I'm going to ask you how we did with it. And the statement was, within four years, this was in 1998, Kentucky expects to no-till 75% of its wheat under highly intense management programs. Is most wheat in Kentucky now high intense? And 
it must be towards the yields, right? Yeah. Back in the eighties, there was a, you know, we, we learned how to no-till corn first and then we came on with soybeans and, mm-hmm. uh, and then, uh, but we just kept tilling for food and, uh, and so there were some farmers that wanted to change that, and a few of them tried it and had some success, but uh, not as much as they wanted. So they came to us and asked us if we'd worked on it. We worked on it for a few years and felt like we had done a good job with figuring out some of the things that would need to be done and tried to sell it to the farmers, and a few of them tried it, and we couldn't get it sold. Hmm. And they would come up with, well, i got more insects, or I'm, I'm, I think we'll have more diseases, or I'm not sure about the fertilizer, you know things that they really weren't sure about, but they just, they had doubts about the overall process and they were picking, kind of picking it apart. And it was logically rather than real problems sometimes, most of the time. And so we started looking at every aspect of no-till wheat and uh, what could be done and how to plant it. And if we need to change seeding rates and what, how we handle the corn stalks and, and, uh, if uh, as far as and we had a lot of aphid problems and then with the barley yellow dwarf and things like that and we kept taking each step at a time looking at every aspect of it and they couldn't say that it wasn't good anymore because we had looked at every <laughs> part of it pulled it apart and and uh, and then took off and uh, but it but it even after we had looked at every aspect of it it still didn't take off very fast and so I still remember this one one trial that I did. But I picked out six farmers, really good wheat, just good farmers overall and good wheat. And they were doing all tillage when it came to wheat. And I said, you guys give me 20 acres. Now, you've got drills that will no-till wheat into standing corn or, or into, into soybeans. I said, so give me 20 acres that you no-till in. And then you can till the rest of it. And then I'll camp 20 acres on one side and 20 acres on the other side. And uh, I'll follow it through. You guys can send me the yield data. And so I followed it through as far as taking samples and all this stuff like that and scouting it and everything. And I said, give me, give me five or six years. And, well, at about the third or fourth year, I noticed that, all of them, the only tillage that was being done was that 20 <laughs> acres on the other side. You know, and I said, well, what happened? And they said, well, this is pretty easy. We don't have to do any tillage. You know, we're trying to get soybeans out. And if you've got to put some people on a tractor and do all this tillage to plant wheat, that takes a lot of time and labor away. He said, we don't have to do that anymore. So we're, we're just no tilling, you know. And so it's it was a vivid demonstration of the fact that people aren't going to accept anything that they haven't tried or their big good buddies haven't tried. It took off after that. It it just took off. Well, I think yeah. 2022 is a big year for no-till because it's the 60th anniversary of the first no-till on the Harry Young field. It's the 50th anniversary of our no-till farmer publication, and it's the 30th anniversary of our National No-Tillage Conference. And I remember the first National No-Tillage Conference in 1993, you spoke at, and you had one of these farmers that was into a high-intensive wheat to hokum operation. And, oh, yeah. Uh, and the two of you spoke, and uh, you remember you were doing some work on, I think, Green Seeker at that time, right? Yeah, I was. Uh-huh. So tell us a little about that experiment and what happened. And here we are 30 years later, it's finally catching on a little bit. (laughs) Well, 
it's like anything else. It, people are slow usually to cut, you know, to see the value of things. But I'm going to start off by saying that I, my first work I did with a chlorophyll meter, where it's a handheld little handheld sure. thing that you clamp onto a leaf, mm-hmm. and and you measure the greenness, and based on that, you can make a good estimate on the amount of nitrogen that's in the plant and the amount of nitrogen needed. But that was quite a lot of work. You had to walk across the field and bend over and, and do these things. But I worked the thing out, and I thought, man, that's going to help. And but people didn't really like it very well because it was it didn't it wasn't very convenient. And so then the company invented this green seeker, which um, is remote sensing uh, placed onto the to fertilizer. Most people mounted it on a, a rig where they're going to put the nitrogen on, and so you were sensing the greenness right in front of the fertilizer applicator and uh, determining how much nitrogen was in there and how much was needed. And, and uh, in order to be accurate, uh, I had to do a lot of research on measuring the greenness and how it related to the amount of nitrogen needed and things like that and worked out some formulas for it. And then when that came true, then I thought that, uh, uh, man, this is going to be, this is going to take off. This is going to really be good. And so I worked with Phil Needham, and he, and he was mm-hmm. a great guy to work with. He had a great guy to work with and did a good job. And just working with someone that understood all this stuff as, as good or better than you did. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we made it work in the field, on farmers' fields. And uh, it was technology, and people weren't that technically oriented at that time. And so it was just a little bit over their heads as far as what they were willing to accept as far as understanding technology and things like that. So mm-hmm. you had a few people that, that were there, but and they used it and continued to use it. It wasn't it didn't catch on real fast. I was disappointed in that, but it's uh but it, it eventually catches on, you know, with time. Right. And and the company improves things too. Right. It makes it more convenient and easier to use. But that was an exciting thing for me. I, I was a little disappointed how slow it caught on. <laughs> you know, when you do a lot of work and spend a lot of effort and, and devote several years of your professional life to something that, that's totally different and it looks like it's got a lot of help, you're, you're excited. But you, you forget that other people aren't where you are, <laughs> and, and you know they're not as excited about it. So sometimes you just get a little discouraged, you know, right. after working that much and and not seeing it being adapted as much. The big thing today is variable rate seeding and fertilization. This was probably variable rate fertilization before we ever heard the term of variable rate. <laughs> That's exactly what it was. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. Residue management. Uh, you got you got all this residue and double cropping. Uh, how important is this? How did you get farmers to start spreading this a whole width of the combines? And how did residue impact no-till? A lot. That was the that was one of the biggest problems of acceptance of no-tillage wheat was the fact that uh, the combines at that time nobody worried about too much about uh, residue distribution behind mm-hmm. the combine. The combines uh, weren't really set up for it that t- at that time. They just kind of dumped it out, and then when sure. they then when they began to realize that they needed to do more with it, they just kind of made something that would pick up the the rotary on the back that distributed it a little bit faster or something like that. It wasn't until you know, they started chopping it and figuring out how more and, and figuring out how to spread it more in a wider range that uh, we really could do no-till well. And you could cut through that residue to 
to do your no-till wheat planting. Uh, but that was a big thing. And then the question was, if you got to earn the corn, how do you plant? And people still have the same problem on no-till wheat. Uh, so how do I plant across the rows and everything like that? And uh, Or do I mow it down? Do I use, if I mow it down, do I use a flail mower or a rotary mower, things like that? And we did a lot of work on that. And I still in the fields today, looking at some things and working with Howard Martin on some things. And, and basically, uh, that people still don't understand that you really, the best way is to go uh, at an angle across the rows, you know, maybe uh-huh. 30 degrees, 45, because you, that way you don't, you're not constantly having one row on an old corn row or something sure. like that that's in the and you're going across it. Um, and, but, Basically, uh, what we found out is you, the more you leave standing, the less you have on the ground to cut through, and that planter will not most of that down uh, as you go across it. So it took a while, and still something that I don't think is well known uh, on planting no tillage is, is the going across the rows on no tillage. When you're planting at an angle, what crop are you seeding? I'm, I'm talking about planting at an angle for a small grain. Well, one of the one of the big problems we got forty and fifty foot uh, headers on combines now. It's, it takes a lot of push to get out to the edges of that. And over the years, we found out that while straw was a problem, maybe chaff was an even bigger problem of not getting chaff. Yeah, it's hard to keep up <laughs> with the way things are changing as far as size of equipment. I mean, that, that, is, a, that is a problem. So farther north in the corn belt, we're kind of hooked on a rotation of corn and soybeans. How do we get wheat back into those rotations for these guys in Indiana, Iowa, Illinois, farther north? They need some diversity, but, you know, for a while, wheat didn't have enough price to it to make up the difference from corner soybeans. Yeah. Well, I don't know that I have a good answer to that, Frank, but what, what I'm what I'm seeing and what I'm thinking is the fact that uh, with this carbon sequestration thing and the emphasis put on that uh, and, uh, and maybe some government money coming in, but to me, Basically, you select in those situations, um, probably wheat won't work as far as uh, having a second crop and things like that. But mm-hmm. basically, I think cover crops, the cover crops that have short season or that fit into your climate zone as far as the amount of time that you have to plant it and kill it before the next crop. Uh, I think that offers a lot of opportunity for yeah. people along that I think that's probably... The best way to look at it at this time, because you know, wheat's just one. It's just one plant, and and uh, it may or may not fit into your situation. But there's a lot of plants out there that have different uh, characteristics and growth habits and timing. And uh, I think, I to me, if a person further north wants to improve their soils and make them better, uh, a winter crop is would be helpful and pick and choose what you want and it will change your soil you know mm-hmm. it takes time now you're still right. i said five years to make us make a significant change but uh, it will improve beyond that so you you don't see it at all time it'll make a difference 
One of the hot, air, hot ideas the last few years has been planting green. Are you seeing that the farmers maybe no-tilling corn into a growing cover crop in the spring in Kentucky? Yeah, but I, not many, though. Mm-hmm. There are a few that plant green. I've worked with cover crops quite a bit the last eight years and uh, and and worked with people with cover crops the last eight years. And basically what I'm seeing is that that's not a bad way to go, but there's a lot of problems that can come with that. And uh, if you if you kill that cover crop earlier, then you reduce the amount of chances for a failure. Mm-hmm. And so I've seen most people uh, kill that cover crop early. Um, now, there's nothing wrong with planting green, and, and I know a lot of people encourage it, but my experience on my research has been I'm, I'm not going to go that way. Yeah. We got the National No-Tillage Conference coming up in Louisville in January, and you were one of the no-till innovators. I expect you're going to be there and help us celebrate in Louisville. And are you retired or semi-retired or what? Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure what either. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I retired in 2012, and then um, I started. I told them I wanted to come back on a on a part time basis and try to find a solution to the fragipan. See if there's something we can do. Fragipan is a hard layer, but below the surface of the soil. In Kentucky, it starts about two feet below the surface of the soil. Sometimes 20 inches, 20 to 24 is the most common, mm-hmm. and then it's about 18 to 24 inches thick. Can be even thicker. And it's as hard as a rock, but it's not a rock. It's the one soil that has that it's cemented to the next soil particle, then the next soil particle. So it's just a solid soil uh, layer that's cemented together by a cement that took by aluminum silicate that was that was about ten thousand years ago. There was an unusual phenomenon of soil blown in, and uh, so that's it took place during that particular time. And it stops root growth almost entirely. It stops water movement almost entirely. So you wind up with a shallow, wet soil in the wintertime and dry soil in the summertime. And it's a very difficult soil to farm. It's been studied a lot from what it is, but it's never been studied very much on how to change it. And then with time, we just, we found out that annual ryegrass was the was a was an unusual plant that had some chemistry in the roots that would actually, over time, break down this pan. Now, it's slow, but that's the job. And so uh, that's what I have spent my time on doing that. And so, but I'm I'm on out there in years, and, and um, so I'm, I'm getting out pretty quick. And, and they need, if they want somebody to continue this, they need to find somebody. So I'm waiting to see if that happens. I got to write, all, I got a lot of data. I got to write it up. And so we found some solutions. I'm excited about it. Uh, but uh, we'll just see if it's like the green seeker and takes forever to catch on, <laughs> or if it starts pretty quick. But I, I've been—it's been such a—it's been so rewarding to me. Yeah, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks to Frank Lesseter and Lloyd Murdoch for today's conversation, and thanks to our sponsor, New Leaf Symbiotics, for helping to make this No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast series possible. Before we wrap up this episode, here's Frank Lesseter once more. A reader question some time ago asked us why South America was so far ahead of us with no-till in the early days, and even today they're ahead of us. And the key is sharing no-till ideas. When no-till was introduced into several 
South American countries such as Brazil and Argentina, the fact that farmers, farm groups, educators, short-line equipment manufacturers, consultants, and government agencies immediately all jumped on the no-till bandwagon. That's one of the major reasons for its quick adoption and success. For example, the rapid acceptance of no-till allowed Argentina growers to expand double cropping, conserve water, boost soil organic matter, trim fertilizer needs, and decrease soil erosion. No-till helped Argentina growers trim soybean production costs by as much as 50% while bringing more marginal land into efficient crop production and boosting yields. And one other thing they did, the South Americans made many trips to Kentucky to find out how double cropping was working with no-till. And there was, in fact, even wider acceptance of no-till research being done by, in Kentucky by South Americans than there was in their 70s and early 80s by American farmers. Thanks for tuning in to the No-Till Farmer Influencers and Innovators podcast. You can find more podcasts about no-till topics and strategies at no-tillfarmer.com slash podcasts. If you have any feedback on today's episode, please send me an email at mpaulkner at lessetermedia.com or call me at 262-777-2441. And don't forget that Frank would love to answer your questions about no-till and the people and innovations that have made an impact on today's practices. Email those questions to us at listenermail at notillfarmer.com. Once again, if you haven't done so already, you can subscribe to this podcast to get an alert as soon as future episodes are released. Find us wherever you listen to podcasts. For Frank Lessiter and our entire staff here at No-Till Farmer, I'm Associate Editor Michaela Pogner. Thank you for listening. Thank you.